UX Podcast Episode 199. You're listening to UX Podcast, coming to you from Stockholm, Sweden. We are your hosts, James Roy Lawson. And Pat Axbull. We've listeners in 180 countries, from Israel to Haiti. And 199. 199? I didn't even think about that. Wow. <laughs> it's no, crazy. No, we're not, not 199 countries. We're not there yeah. yet. But 199 episodes. Yeah. That means that next episode will be number 200. Yeah. And that Christmas episode. That seems quite big. It is reasonably big. I'm, thinking, I'm thinking nobody wants to miss that show. <laughs> Definitely not. We won't. Yeah. <laughs> Perhaps. Uh, today is uh, us talking to Catherine McElroy. She's an award-winning designer, speaker, and author of Prototyping for Designers. She loves working with electronics and making actionable prototypes to test and refine. We talked to Catherine at UXLX about the good, fun of working with physical objects as a designer, but also how bridging the gap between the physical and digital and becoming a multimodal designer allows you to be a designer who thinks about the great experience and can explore the many ways to enhance the experience outside of the screen. So it seems like if you're a UX designer today, it's really hard to know if you are supposed to work with only digital or also with digital and physical products, because now, Everyone's talking about AI, and there are all like these health armbands, wristbands, um, chatbots, uh, voice interfaces, Internet it's of Things devices, yeah, connected yeah. devices. Yes, it's every. So, what am I as a designer anymore? If, if, if I work with digital, and I know you have experience with this, I mean, how do you cope with that cross section of interfaces? So, I've always mm. been really interested in the the physical dimension. Uh, when I've been going through school and I've I started in fine arts and sculpture so I've always worked with my hands to build things and I went into my MFA program and discovered UX and I loved being able to organize things because that's also a passion of mine yeah. so having both of those things uh, together in this physical interactive interface uh, I just fell in love with smart objects and electronics so I actually went to IBM to to design software for a while, and I was trying to find a way to, to keep up with my physical part and to, to really think through how to bring in electronics. And I found electronics, and specifically Arduino, to be really uh, advantageous for screen designers to interact with because you can build the interactive parts of a smart object that'll eventually be in a screen mm. to prototype and user test and to really bridge that gap between the, the physical and the digital. And being able to be a multimodal designer is valuable today. If you're only a screen designer, you're only thinking about one small aspect of an experience. If you're thinking about the full context, the environment someone's in, the different sensors you can take advantage of so that you can make that experience even better, mm. there's so much richer of an experience that you can provide for that person. Wow. So back up, Arduino, what is it? Yeah, Arduino is a microcontroller yeah. platform. It is a hobbyist level, so it's really easy to, to get into and to start with. You can build circuits, so you can blink on LEDs. It pretty much takes uh, inputs, like sensors, mm. 
a photo resistor that is sensing light. Uh, and then it does something in the, in the program that you code, and then it gives an output. Hmm. So a photoresistor can now, as the lights dim, turn on an LED, and you can program that really easily. Hmm. It's also a great way for designers to get into code just to understand it as a material and to think through what you can do with code, not only on a screen, hmm. but in a physical dimension. Yeah, because there's two different. You can there's more than one way you can program them, isn't, isn't there? You can program with, um, uh, with like a C-based kind of language, or you can use the what's the what's the language you use in schools to to teach the the simple one, the more simple HTML language. CSS for. Now I was thinking about the the controlling smart objects and Arduino. Vince um, VS. Oh, I've forgotten it. What it is? We'll think of it later. I cut that out because <laughs> I can't remember what the um <laughs> the thing is. Stitch. Yeah, one word starts with an S. I, I agree. I mean, Arduino sketches are mm. the the file type. No, I think I'm the not sure what the, the programming language mm. that they use mm. the schools and that to program these kind of things. Mm. I guess yeah. Stitch is me. I love how, how what you said there about oh. code being a material, because there's so much discussion going on about designers need to learn how to code. I mean, and then people say no, they don't. Yeah, but they do. It's good if they understand the concept. Uh, so what do we really mean by that? And it's, but when you talk about Arduino, it sounds kind of daunting. It's like, how do I even dare get into that as a designer? Uh, and you, I bet you have some experience of, of that from your workshop, because that's what you do in the workshop. Yeah, so that's mm. why I am really passionate about mm. teaching that right now. Mm. So I have a book, Prototyping for Designers. And in that, I've written this bridge between the physical and digital, and using electronics to prototype digital experiences, because mm. it's, a, it's really fun, it's engaging, it's interactive. And there's still this perception that Arduino and coding is a high barrier of entry. And that's why I like doing a workshop, because by providing the materials mm. and by providing a kind of Sherpa experience, so I guide them through the first couple circuits and give a little bit of methodology behind how they can then use that kit to build other things, uh, designers are super excited by the end of it and you just see the their eyes light up when they realize the possibilities and that they can do it themselves yeah. Yeah. it's just so much fun and that's why i love doing this workshop but there's also so much online it's an open source community so arduino has so many tutorials online uh, there's lots of resources on instructables.com for how to build simple circuits and different mm. types of smart objects that once you get over that kind of stumbling block of, oh, this isn't for me, you can just build whatever you want because you can find it online. <laughs> mm. So it's so much fun and it, it's way easier than it, than it looks. The mm. type of code that Arduino uses is a form of C++ that is very legible. So there's just a couple minor things you have to keep in mind, but mm. then for the most part, for the prototypes that designers would build, you can find chunks of code online and just kind of string them together. You don't mm. necessarily need to code from scratch. And that's one of the tricks that I, I teach is that don't try to reinvent the wheel, kind of take different pieces of other people's ideas and string them together in a new and interesting way yeah. to build what you need to build. Right. Yeah, because it's, it's module-based. So y if you're working one of those modules, there'll be examples yes. of how you code for that module that are pretty much ready to go. Yeah, and so one example is I built a smart messenger bag. It has an entire front panel of LEDs, RGB LEDs, so they can change color and mm -hmm. do patterns. And I wanted it to react to what's in the bag. So I put an RFID reader inside oh. of the bag. I put RFID tags yeah. on my objects. And now my bag warns me if I've forgotten something or if something's not in the bag. So in order to build that and test it, 
I set up the RTBLADs first, and I tested that, and that worked. And then I found an example for the RFID reader, mm. and then I coded those two things together with just mm. a little bit, uh, and that made it so much easier to troubleshoot. Everyone troubleshoots. It's like yeah. it's a part mm. of electronics. Mm. Uh, but by making it the easiest way possible, now I have this bag that nobody else had made, but there was enough example code out there. And then I provided that code back to the open source community so mm. other people can make it. And there's a tutorial with Make Magazine with that specific project, so you can build it yourself. Very so it's a really bag. cool community. Yeah. Oh, that's really clever. I have a use case right now because I mean, we have our mobile recording gear, and I need all the cables and the microphones and the Zoom, and I want to make sure that's in the bag when I leave. Oh, yeah, and see. that would mean that one of the lights wouldn't be on or something like that. Exactly. <laughs> oh, yes, yeah, so you're fitting yeah. program a checklist. Exactly. Oh. Fantastic. Yeah. Nice. So opens up a lot of possibilities. So what, what are some other types of uh, prototypes that you build in the workshop? Uh, so in the mm. workshop, we, we do a little bit more entry mm. level. Mm. So I do share a lot of examples, um, like the, the chameleon bag yeah. is what that's called, wow. because mm. it can change yeah. color. Yeah. Um, and what I try to get the, the group to do is build the first really easy circuit, which is just blinking an LED. Mm. And then we fade an LED, which is a different kind of code and process. Mm. And then we add a button, and we turn on a buzzer with a button. So with those three, they've kind of built that base knowledge, that foundation, where they understand how the code is laid out. They understand a couple simple components and how to plug them together. And then for the last uh, third of the workshop, I give them a prompt for a prototype to build. So build an adaptive light. It kind of leaves it open-ended so they can solve it in different ways. Mm. But then I provide three or four different uh, code examples and circuit diagrams so they can build that. They can take that and tweak the code. They can Google some extra code and plug it in. So it, it really makes the workshop uh, open to all levels. So people who have done a little bit of electronics, they've probably done those first basic yeah. circuits before. But now I've opened it up to the end in order for them to be able to, to do additional and think through right. how they might then prototype and then test that electronic circuit with someone. Mm. I love what you said about people getting excited, because obviously you get excited when you instantly learn that you can do stuff that you didn't know you could do. I'm thinking that now that would also benefit in, in the workplace. Managers or whoever you're reporting to would also become excited when you show them stuff like this. So that would be a way to sell in, this is the way we should be working with prototypes. Yeah, it's really interesting because I'd say it's a 50-50 reaction. Okay. Uh, it takes a little bit mm. of advocating and, and selling that this is something mm. that, that really benefits screen designers. So I was working at IBM before. Uh, I currently work at Argo Design. And at IBM, we had a great make lab. They were doing screen printing. It, we had a lot of visual designers. Mm. and. So I proposed bringing this kind of introduction to, to Arduino to this make lab. And it took a little bit of convincing, uh, but I, I did two workshops and had that instant reaction. And it was just getting the manager's foot in the door because even the managers, they could take that class too mm. and really be inspired and be like, oh, that's, that's really interesting. And especially at IBM, um, it's a third developers who are engineers, uh, a third designers, and a third business. And getting all of them into the same room to build these kind of circuits mm. was really uh, collaborative and empowering, and the developers could help the designers, and mm. they were all kind of working together. So it was really fun. 
but there is that initial uh, reaction of this isn't what we do. And so it's breaking down that, that reaction and, and thinking about, well, what if it was? And maybe we can just give it a try. Mm-hmm. And it takes just like one or two people to step up and be like, hey, let's try this out. And I'm willing to teach this or I'm willing to walk through a tutorial with mm-hmm. everyone in order to bring it to a larger audience. So are you thinking of this as a, also a, because you're saying we're bridging the gap between the digital and the physical. So a lot of the things that we are working on an, on a day-to-day basis, we probably could find other solutions to if we were prepared to actually work with more physical prototypes. I presume. I'm putting words in your mouth. Oh, yeah, I think so. <laughs> I think it just, uh, pardon the pun, but it, it does bring a whole other dimension yeah. to prototyping. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. it's yeah. that... It's another mental model to Mm. apply. It's a lens to apply to what we work on. Mm. And we already think about some physical interaction. So if you're doing some paper prototyping very early on for software, you can do electronics as well and think through, okay, this interface. So if you think of the Hue smart lights, uh, it has an interface on a phone and you have a dial that changes the colors. Mm. You have a scroll that changes the brightness. You have a button to turn it on and off. You can do all three of those things with an RGB LED without needing to code anything. And you can test out that interaction and kind of plan and and plug that together. And that's something a designer can do. It doesn't have to be an engineer or developer. So I think it's just Mm -hmm. really empowering to uh, designers. And it also then is a really great entryway for designers to be more comfortable learning than more, uh, more intense code or HTML, CSS, and be able to to speak the same language as their developers a little bit too, if they are more fully in software. Exactly. So you gain trust with your developer team. Yeah. And developers are really excited Mm. about electronics usually too. Mm. Um, I've had such nerdy conversations with developers and some of the stuff that they hack in their free time. Mm. And if you're a designer who's like, oh yeah, I hack too. It just like instantly breaks yeah. down barriers yeah. and it yeah. is so much, it's fun to mm. talk about. Yeah. I can see the, the, the team building and the, and the collaborative side of this is absolutely excellent and it, it seems to be perfect mix of, of these, uh, getting people excited. You, 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 like you say, you're getting the developers, the, the engineers and designers all excited about something and they can work on it together. But but how? But I can see that some people are going to go. They are going to have a real problem with that leap. It's like, well, I don't work. I work with I work with websites. And we never do physical products. Mm. I mean, mm-hmm. how, how can this prototype, prototyping method work work for me? Or is there another prototyping method that might move me a little bit outside of my traditional zone that can help them? I think that there there are much more directly related prototyping methodologies. So if you really are just doing websites. Maybe Arduino is not the best to incorporate into your work. But if you want to build a really fun Halloween costume, <laughs> if you want to like incorporate some LEDs, mm. you can find ways to like play with Arduino while you're then doing more rigorous prototyping of your, your web work. So for that, the, the standards of Envision and all of the, our new prototyping tools that are coming out, uh, there's, there's so many opportunities to prototype through that. And it's really... What I try to stress and what I write about in the book is more about the methodology of understanding what are assumptions in your work and then finding the right ways to address those assumptions and test them. Because at the end of the day, there's always going to be a new tool. But if you have the mindset of incremental improvement in your work, Mm. no matter what type of improvement method you're using, Mm. Arduino, Envision, paper prototyping, you're going to bring that to all of your work 
and be able to make better products. Yeah. Yes. So, what, so what would be some common mistakes that people do when prototyping? Um, common mistakes mm. for prototyping. Mm. Trying to do the whole experience. Mm -hmm. I, th yeah. I don't think you need to prototype your entire product. Oh, you try to make it kind of too complete, too close yes. to the end thing. Right. Exactly. So if you have a short period of time, or if you, because a lot of people are blocked from prototyping, because they're like, we don't have enough time for it. Yeah. But you have enough time. You just have to prioritize your assumptions. Yeah. First, like I said, you have to recognize you have assumptions. Then you have to <laughs> prioritize them and pick like the, just the couple that are, if those are the make or break points, if that breaks, it's, this is just like lean, lean startup methodology. Mm -hmm. So make sure that you're testing those, those smaller pieces. And you don't need to build the full experience to test that. You can build just one user flow, or it just you choose the depth or the breadth of the prototype for your specific use case that you need to test. So I'd say making sure to, to build just enough of a prototype. Right. So, so you prototype um, enough to be able to pose the question that you've thought about before you started prototyping. So, so as long as you can answer the question you yes. posed to yourself, then the prototype is good enough for that yeah, purpose. Exactly. Mm, yeah, exactly. And then making sure to check check yourself and your team's biases and assumptions. So a lot of the times, like if you don't have a diverse group of people working on a product, you have biases that you don't understand. And that's why it's really important to prototype and get it in front of real users. So proxy users, whatever users you can get access to, mm. you just need to make sure you have other brains looking at it because yeah. your team might be very insular and have a very similar mental model mm. and you need to test w outside of that mental model. Mm. And what I get a lot also is clients expect something, they say they need something, and when you can show, them, show it to them quite quickly in a prototype, they themselves realize how stupid of an idea it was, which it sometimes <laughs> is. Mm. But you can't really tell them, you can't convince them without actually doing the prototype. Yeah, it's mm. definitely a showing mm. versus telling. Yeah. And uh, a prototype, if a picture speaks a thousand mm. words, a prototype mm. speaks like a hundred thousand. Exactly. So. so tell us about a fun product, because I know you've worked a lot with wearables as well, which yes. is really cool. Well, the, the handbag we've already talked about, the chameleon handbag. Yeah, exactly. Uh -huh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, mostly health wearables, I'm assuming. I saw a picture of you with three watches on your arm. Yeah. <laughs> so that was a project that I just finished up at Argo Design. We're an innovation agency mm. in Austin, Texas. And we had a client who wa came to us with the ask to design a hybrid smartwatch. So it's a smartwatch that has a screen, but it also has physical hands on it. And so we were able... Oh, so wow. we were actually. Yeah. So I wonder what you meant by hybrid, because yes. it kind of already feels nice. smartwatch by itself feels like a, a hybrid already, because yeah. it's a kind of almost like a phone plus a watch. Yeah. So so hybrid hybrid nest. Oh yeah. So it's there's so much physical digital happening within this one small interface, yeah. um, and it was an interesting constraint because they came to us saying we need those physical hands, mm. and we're like, ah, it's it's trying to take two worlds and combine it, but as we worked through it and we were looking at the audience and really understanding smartwatch users. Mm. So we, we got a bunch of smartwatches to test and see what the benefits of the screen is and, and the best ways to use it. And we found that if you think of the Apple Watch or Android Wear watches, when you look at it, you usually have to tilt your arm and look down. And that's a social indication of you're wasting my time. Yeah. Yeah. There, with our smartwatches, <laughs> we have this built in impatience when all you really need is the time. So what's nice about the hybrid is that you can, it, it's glanceable again. 
you don't have to move your wrist. Yeah. Uh, you can see what time mm. it is without the screen going on. And it also, you can stay out of it more. So when you look at a screen, you're instantly usually drawn into a screen. But if you don't have to look at it for the time, which is still the number one use exactly. of a smartwatch, mm. is the time. Mm. Um, you can stay out of it more. Yeah, that's, I mean, that, it's fascinating when you say things like that. It's like, yeah, the watch needs to tell the time. It sounds so obvious when yeah. you say it like this now, mm. but in many ways we've kind of we kind of lost that with smartwatches. When they're like, I can see you've got your smartwatch on now and it's completely black. I can't even glance at yours and see the time. Exactly. But now if we have mm. that little bit of physical back in there. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And it suddenly fulfills its primary function better again. Exactly. Wonderful. <laughs> But another wearable that I was uh, really excited to work on as a personal project is called Tempo, and that's one that I talk about a lot. And it's a haptic pacing armband. Uh, ha so haptic yeah. pacing armband. So okay. pretty much uh, it's a, it rests on the arm, and yeah. it pulses a, a slow, steady pattern. And that pattern mm. is adjustable. And that was really where I cut my teeth and learned all of the, the prototyping methods for uh, for electronics because I built six different prototypes of that to, to test it and to see if it was a viable idea and to understand how people would want that kind of meditative uh, mindfulness piece. Oh, so and that's the use case for it. You'd put this band on and it would help you stay in the present relax. moment. Okay, yes. Yeah. Uh, the original idea was to, was to help people stay uh, focused at work and be able to realize the passing of time. Since oh, I wow. once I create okay. since I've created this, there have been a couple of different uh, other products that are uh, similar, mm. but it's really so you can feel passing of time and then have that slower, steady mm. kind of help you regulate your heart rate as mm. well. Mm. And then when I, as a user tested it through a bunch of different uh, prototypes, people had such different use cases they wanted to use it for. So they wanted to use it to time runs, to pace their runs. Of course, yeah. They wanted to use it during yoga to time, very much like anything timing wise, mm. as a silent metronome while they were drumming. Mm, exactly. Yeah. And even I had one person that said that putting it on her wrist alleviated some of her carpal tunnel. And so by user testing, I went from a very small use case mm. to like lots of use cases and even potentially a medical application of this one idea. Yeah. And, and that's could, yeah. Could you could you could you even use it um, to to as a preemptive um, device for like anxiety? Like yes. if you know you're going to go into an, an, a situation that makes you anxious, that then could maybe help mm. you be very aware of the fact that you were that's how you should be calm and mm. keep you calm. And and it's funny you say that is because I usually when I started speaking at prototyping, I would wear that uh -oh. the entire time, and then at the end of my talk, uh -huh. I'd be like. And this is how I use it. It keeps me calm and breathing while yeah. I'm speaking in front yeah. of people. And it really is like a, it's like an anti-anxiety buddy. Yeah. yeah, that's excellent. I want one now. Yeah, I do yeah. too. Because <laughs> <laughs> that makes me think of calm technology. And, and it's funny you said about glanceability as well with the watch before, because that was a, like a hot word. And just two years back, I think, people were, all, were talking about glanceability all the time. We need to get away from interfaces. We need to just be able to glance at stuff and get information, enough information to continue forward with, with, with whatever task we're, we're continuing with. And just that concept for me is like, I think we are moving away from screens at a much larger or greater rate than I think most people, the designers are aware. And we need to be more aware of all these physical, I don't know, products that we can use for the same types of tasks that we're using screens for right now. Uh, so 
I would argue that it's not only for people who are working with physical products. So the designers who are only working with screens today would be really helped with starting to think along these paths as well. Yes, definitely. Mm -hmm. And to, to really future-proof mm -hmm. and to have more of a future-facing design mm -hmm. philosophy of how how the entire environment and the, the objects within it are reacting mm -hmm. and interacting with the people. Because, yeah, because we have to remember we're, we're not designing screens. We're designing for people, for humans. And so we need to understand the humans first and then think about whatever solution is the best for them. Well, yeah, we're enabling mm -hmm. tasks and experiences yeah. for whatever device or thing uh, it's the best fit. Mm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And prototyping helps mm. us yeah. to understand what's the best fit. Yeah. Oh, well, we've, we've certified <laughs> now. We, <laughs> we can get our badges <laughs> and go. <laughs> At some point, I want to attend your workshop, definitely. Thanks so much for sitting down with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. <laughs> thank you. To think back about, I, uh, when I asked um, Catherine about you know, how is this useful for, for those of us that work with, with just websites or just screens, and she goes back and says, well, you know, it might not be useful mm. for you directly in your work. Mm. Yeah, okay, fair enough, I'll buy that. But what I think we're underplaying there is if you combine it with um, the whole thing of team building or, or kickoffs at the beginning of, of projects, that, um, you don't have to sell this to um, stakeholders. You could actually just say, right, we're going to start off by doing something together just to get a feel for yeah. or improve, learn how to work together. And this, I think, will be really really cool fun valuable thing to do as, a, as an exercise together build something program something that's not your project yeah. i agree and as you're saying that i realized because we are always we have different competencies on teams but programmers always like to show what they know so you'll have different people will know some stuff you will get to learn the stuff but you can all play around with it Think of crazy ideas to do with the lights or whatever sensors you choose to do something with, yeah. and just have good laughs and just become a better team. Yeah, because we when we go into when we go into the projects, mm. we, we're getting bogged down straight away by our labels. Mm. You're a UX designer. Yeah, I'm a UX researcher. You're a developer. Mm. You're a product owner. You you've got these really heavy labels and energy starts to disappear into making sure you're kept mm. to your label or you, you start using your own label mm. to, as an excuse not to do something. Whereas in a team building exercise at the beginning, that maybe utilizes all of these skills. Yeah. But you don't have to stick to your label. That is where you maybe can create value. Oh, yeah, I see, yeah. With, with allowing the, the mm. developer who mm. does have a flair mm. for, for, for UX mm. or front end or allowing the, mm. the, um, the researcher who can actually code C++. Mm. Great. Yeah. Exactly. You, you've now opened a door to, to enlightenment mm -hmm. and conversations that you can maybe make mm -hmm. use of in your, in your project. Yeah, that's a great team-building exercise. But I also see sort of the potential for, even if you're just building screens, if you're in such a workshop, you could actually use these tools to think about how could you in increase the immersiveness of experience by understanding better what, what goes on in these, your target group's everyday life. Mm. We always talk about how annoying notifications are and people shut them off. But are there other ways that, because some notifications are important, but people tend to shut everything off because it's just such a hassle and they just get mad at them. Are there ways, like when I, I mentioned Calm Technology in the, in the interview, are there ways we can light things up, uh, play sounds, whatever, that isn't annoying, but is still helpful? Uh, 
I, I see ways of exploring that space that probably would be really useful, even if it's just something that you're doing for an, as an exercise for innovation, for just thinking of, uh, about something that you may not be working on currently, but just understanding the problem space. Mm. Absolutely. So, I mean, this, this is clearly a really good way of, well, you can prototype quickly mm. when you're working with um, um, products with yeah. product development and that's what Catherine's pushing with this yeah. um, but it has multiple benefits for exploring um, you know, the, the areas where our digital stuff crosses over into the physical yeah. space and what I did find really really fascinating was what she touched upon in the end where it was her haptic armband I think is I don't remember what it was called tempo is what it was tempo. called and uh, she started user testing and by user testing, she found a bunch of new use cases that weren't part of what she was trying to solve. Mm. But she realized this is something simple, so it can be used in many different ways. And that's, that's a great way of learning about the people you're designing for. You're understanding, wow, they have some, some really good ideas about how this can be used that I hadn't thought of. Yeah, I think this mm. is, it makes me think of the um, um, I IKEA hacks. Oh, yeah. That there's an entire community... <laughs> Um, or even websites based yeah. on how you can you can modify and change and, and do other stuff with IKEA products mm. and and IKEA themselves of course use that as as research as 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 input with exactly. um, learning mm. on how they can maybe make mm. other products based mm. on that. It's, um, so you're putting it out into the world, and that's another thing she also touches upon, which I like is she she shared her design for these these lights on the bag. It's open source now; anyone can use it and build upon it. Mm. And I just love that community sense. Yeah, giving something back. Yeah. Allowing people to build on your ideas. Thank you for spending your time with us today in episode 199. As always, links and notes from this episode can be found on uxpodcast.com. If you want to listen to something next, I've got lots of suggestions. Mm -hmm. Well, there's two, actually, specific ones. Episode 122, Calm Technology. Oh, yeah, we did have an episode about that. Of course. Good. Well remembered. <laughs> yeah. Me. Um, <laughs> and episode 191, where we talked about ergonomics with Kevin Cannon. I was also from UXLX, the same one. Whereas, uh, Kevin focused on um, prototyping of um, interfaces, so it was like tables oh, yeah. and desks and chairs and so on, as a, as a very useful tool. Mm. But combined with the chat now with um, Catherine, you get mm. two different angles on using electronics to prototype and using like tables and cardboard and things and so on to create spaces to, to explore and to learn. It's like I'm giving homework at the end of this show. <laughs> <laughs> Remember to keep moving. <laughs> Sorry, did you want to say something for that? <laughs> you just took my tagline, but yeah. Oh, was that mine? Oh, you did it. I did. <laughs> what are you doing right now? I don't know. <laughs> I got excited about 199, and since then I yeah. lost it. See you under the side. What do I do now? I don't know. <laughs> Who's there? Snow. Snow who? Snow, you's pretending you don't know who I am? <laughs>